I am Pastor Tina Shrammy, and I am normally working with the children and families, and I love, love, love my job, and occasionally I get to come and speak with you guys, and so I'm grateful to be here today. Um, I want to read to you um, some scripture from Mark. This is from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. A leper came to him, him being Jesus, begging him and kneeling. He said to him, if you choose... You can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately, the man with leprosy was healed. He was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely anyway and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we ask that your words today would speak to us. I ask that the words from my mouth would be pleasing to you, Lord, and that my self would get out of the way and you would be heard today, Lord. May your presence be felt among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about six or seven years ago, uh, this week, Thanksgiving, um, my husband got kind of sick. So it was the week of Thanksgiving. It was the weekend, of just, just like today. So it's this Sunday before Thanksgiving. And unusually, we did not have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving. So we were looking forward to a nice, quiet, relaxing week. You know how hectic it is, and you look forward to the sort of that downtime. That's where we were. Our kids were younger. And so we were looking forward to downtime. And because, you know, my husband was off for the week, I definitely had a big honey-do list for my husband to get done that week. We were going to get some stuff done, get some Christmas shopping done, you know, all of that fun stuff. Well, on Sunday, my husband got up on the roof to put the Christmas lights on because I was determined we were going to get the lights up that week, even though I'm not the one that has to do it. But he, uh, so he gets up on the roof, and he's he just barely up there for a little bit, and he says, you know, I don't feel very good. I think I'm going to come down. So he comes down. He's not feeling, you know, he doesn't really have any major symptoms. He just, he's like, I just don't feel right. Kind of a little upset stomach, but nothing major. So he's fine. The next day, he says, oh, I'm feeling a little bit better. So I'm like, well, why don't you get back up on the roof and do those lights? So he gets back up on the roof, and again, he gets up there, and after a while, he's like, you know, I just, I don't feel good. I feel kind of dizzy, and I don't feel good, and I don't think I should be up on the roof. And I'm like, well, all right. So he comes down. He comes down, and, you know, again, no major symptoms, just not feeling right. Tuesday, he, he doesn't get on the roof because he's feeling kind of bad. Wednesday, he's thinking he feels better, so he gets back up on the roof. Sure enough, he's up there for about 30 minutes, and he's like, I really need to come down. Every time I get up here, I just feel dizzy, and I start feeling sick again. So I'm like, okay, fine. I thought we were going to get this done before Thanksgiving. So he comes down. Well, that night, he gets really, really sick. In the middle of the night, he just he is having severe stomach pain, um, feeling like he needs to throw up, but not really throwing up. I mean, just really, really, really sick. And so we go in the middle of the night, um, there, uh, really early, early morning on Thanksgiving morning to the hospital, the emergency room here in Mansfield. And he is just in severe, severe pain at this point. 
And um, so we go into the hospital and the emergency room. We're in the emergency room all day long. And I'm not kidding you. If one person asked us, 15 different people asked us, did you eat too much Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> because he couldn't describe what, you know, he just said, my stomach, I'm just in severe pain. So they thought, I don't know, maybe he had gas or something. I'm not sure. But they, every single tech doctor, nurse that came through there wanted to know if he had eaten too much Thanksgiving dinner. And we said, no, in fact, he hasn't eaten in two days. So, but they didn't, you know, anyway, it was kind of funny. Um, so then he, uh, they can't figure out what's wrong with him. So he gets admitted to the hospital. <clears throat> we end up being in there for five days. Well, because at, towards the end of his day in the emergency room that evening, he starts to break out in a rash. So now they're really concerned. They're thinking he's got something that's, you know, um, what do you call it when it's, you can spread it? What's that? Yeah, contagious. Thank you. I couldn't think of that word. Contagious. Yeah. So they're thinking he might be contagious. So he has to go into this isolation room and they don't know what's wrong with him. So everybody that comes in, unless they have to do something to him to give him an IV or whatever, they don't touch him. They have gloves on. They have masks on. They stand about this far away and just sort of talk to him like this. It was very disconcerting and depressing and lonely. We couldn't have friends or family come visit. It was really scary, honestly. It was very scary. And about the third or fourth day in the hospital, they finally diagnosed him. You know what it was? Chickenpox. Yes, my husband had never had chickenpox as a child. And so apparently he had such an extreme case that it was affecting him internally before it ever showed itself externally. So he, that's all that stomach pain, that was chickenpox sort of ravaging the inside of him. It was really kind of a miserable experience. But I was, the funny part about that is he will never let me live that down, that I was trying to will him better, right? I was determined we were going to get those Christmas lights up. But we didn't until about two weeks later, so I let him off the hook. But I was really trying to will him better, and he, he will never, ever let me live that down. So this man with leprosy um, that meets Jesus here, he seems desperate to meet Jesus, right? Now, let's, let's explain why he might have been desperate. Leprosy uh, back in the time of Jesus in the first century might have, would have been something that was used to describe sort of a wide-ranging uh, group of skin diseases. Leprosy was no doubt probably one of them, but it also kind of included anything that couldn't figure out what it was. They would put it under that, under that banner. Now, the current form of, of leprosy is known as Hansen's disease, and it's pretty rare these days, but it's caused by a bacterial infection, and it starts sort of uh, in the skin, the symptoms show up in the skin, and your, your peripheral nervous system, and it sort of moves out to your hands and your feet and all your extremities, right? Patients with uh, leprosy experience sort of disfigurement of the skin and bones. There's a twisting of the limbs, a curling of the fingers. They can get sort of a claw-like experience, a thickening of the outer ear. They can get tumor-like growths all over their face and their body. And then the growths will get down into their respiratory tract and maybe into their eyes. And as if this disfigurement and um, the growths and all of this, just the illness are not enough, there's a loss, also a loss of pain um, sensation and nerve damage. So, in fact, if they were sleeping on the ground, they would have to be very careful because they might not feel it if an animal or a creature tried to come up and start gnawing on them. They wouldn't know to, to stop that. This is a really awful, awful disease. Now, on top of that, because this was a, a disease that they had no cure for, they had nothing they could do for it, 
they were considered unclean by society, both religious society and secular society. In fact, there's almost two full chapters in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament that tell us how to deal with people with leprosy. That's how important it was that we deal with them properly because they were unclean. They were to be outcast away from society. And if they came in contact with anybody, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, so that people would be warned to steer clear of them. I mean, I, I really, really can't imagine a worse way to live, a more miserable existence. Isolated, despised, sick, outcast, disfigured, lonely. So maybe this helps us understand a little bit why the man came, as it says, came to him, begging him and kneeling. So the kneeling part sounds almost humiliating to, to me. I think you would just approach this man that you don't even know and get down on your knees. But I'm sure for the man with leprosy, this was no worse than the common day life for him. So then we read that he said to Jesus, if you choose, you can make me clean. Now, the word if in the Greek suggests that it, it is very likely to be true. Um, and you can almost translate it as saying, since you can make me clean. And the verb in this condition is also translated by wish or choose. So it's essentially the man is saying something like, if you want to and you do, you can make me clean. You're able to. Of course, Jesus confirms his willingness to do so with a simple I am willing. The man seems to inherently know the power that Jesus brings. To cure leprosy was a great feat in the first century. It didn't happen except for by miraculous power. So this man seems to know something about Jesus. And though faith, the word, isn't mentioned in the story, he believed inherently that Jesus, this average person at this point, a carpenter, somebody who was not a priest or even on the inner religious circle, could somehow pull on some miraculous powers. What made him believe this? Why? Had he, why? Had he heard stories of Jesus? Maybe, but in this uh, gospel of Mark, this is in the first chapter, remember? I mean, some stuff had happened already, but not enough that the, all the word had spread. So we don't know. Maybe it's, he, he, it's possible he has heard of this miracle worker. Maybe it was just utter desperation that led him to believe, to have faith. Maybe he was just trying to will it so. I know desperation in my own life often puts me on my knees in front of God. I'm sure that happens for some of you too. When you've tried everything humanly possible, you've tried to will yourself to be able to do the things you know you need to do or to find answers and you end up on your knees to God in desperation. Working at the church, I see that a lot. I see people come in here who have never been to church or have been to church very seldom, and they come in here desperate. They're looking for this God that maybe might be real. They're coming and looking. So we may never know why, but we do know this man stepped way outside the societal boundaries to reach Jesus. He used his will to reach Jesus. He wasn't shouting unclean, unclean, or even hiding his disfigurement. He did what he had to do to reach Jesus, as we all should do, and he knew Jesus, he believed, was the answer. 
Now Jesus said, I do choose, be made clean, and the man was immediately made clean. But before Jesus spoke those words, it says, he was moved with pity. Now, pity, I guess that seems natural to feel for a man in this condition, right? Researching the passage, though, this word, there's a lot of controversy over this phrase. Nobody really agrees in any of the commentaries. Some ancient manuscripts used a Greek word meaning to have pity. Others used the base word meaning to be angry. And so others used to, the word that means to be filled with compassion. So which was it? Was Jesus feeling pity, anger, or compassion? Well, though we'd like to have some definitive answers, sometimes the Bible just doesn't give them to us. We sort of have to figure it out a little bit. I propose that he was feeling all of the above. He was approached by this man on the margins, a man who had been outcast not only by society, but also by the religious authorities. He had no doubt asked the priests and other religious people to heal him at some point, maybe many times, but that wasn't possible. And they would never give him the right to go back and live among the living. Societal law and religious law prevented him from living any kind of life. So we know Jesus had many opposition, many encounters with these authorities, both in this Gospel of Mark and in the other three Gospels as well. So perhaps Jesus was just mad that this man had to come begging on his knees. Maybe he was mad at the priests and their stupid laws. Maybe he was frustrated with the fact that this man felt he had to go to such desperate measures to reach him. So maybe moved with pity should really read, Move with utter frustration, anger, pity, and compassion. But after Jesus heals the man, he does another strange thing. He sternly warns him to say nothing to nobody. Now, I'm not talking slang here. This is literally how the Greek translates. It's a, sort of this double negative. He really didn't want him to say anything to anybody, except for he wanted him to go tell the priests, because this is what you did back then. You had to get approval. It's like you are officially clean when the priests say, you are clean and you may go back and live as in society. So on one hand, Jesus disobeys the law by even talking to the man, certainly by touching him. But then he instructs the man to go back and fulfill his duty, those, those religious duty, to get a clean bill of health. This would have been the man's ticket back into society. And this is where Jesus does a lot of contradictory things like this. You know, on one hand, he says, these laws um, aren't always necessary. But on the other hand, sometimes you have to do what you have to do to fit in with society. So why did Jesus um, want to keep the healing a secret except for to the priests? Well, probably because of what happens next in the story. The man, of course, ignores Jesus' instructions, and it says, He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country. We know both from history and from other stories in the Bible that the development of crowds around a central fig figure in Galilee and in Jerusalem could be dangerous to that figure, in particular if they weren't in agreement with the authorities of that town. Crowds could be a big problem. If they found out who Jesus really was before it was time, it could have been disastrous. And in fact, it is when Jesus actually admits to being the Messiah at the end of Mark's gospel that the crowd sentences him to death. 
I believe in Mark's telling of the gospel, Jesus could only be understood in his true role as the Messiah, as the anointed one sent from God, in light of the bigger picture of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus didn't want to be known as just another miracle worker, and Mark didn't want us to understand him as that. He didn't want us to know that Jesus was just here on earth to heal the sick and exercise demons, but also to make the blind see. Jesus came came to bring the reign of God to earth, to open the eyes of priests and widows and Pharisees and orphans and pharaohs and lepers, to see what it was like to live in the reign of God here and now. What Mark will suggest in chapter 7 is that Jesus believed that with the inbreaking of God's dominion, with his reign on earth, these rules about clean and unclean, and indeed also many other rules were actually obsolete. They had fulfilled their purpose, but now the Holy One of God had appeared and a new state of affairs was at hand. So despite the dangers of the crowd, Jesus must continue to go where the people are. And by the end of this little story, Jesus has shown us what it costs to go where the people are, and it's a cost he's willing to pay. He begins as the one free to wander, urgent in his message and successful in gathering crowds around him. But by the end of the story, Jesus has traded places with the former leper, who is now wandering freely, proclaiming what the Lord has done and creating a positive response, while Jesus has become isolated. There is an exchange of roles, a reversal of realities between Jesus and the man whom he has healed. This points long range to the role that Jesus is willing to take for humanity itself, right? You see that, don't you? He gave up his life, his freedom, with a willingness to die for all of us. In fact, he uses the language of willing In chapter 14, verse 36, exchanging his own desires for what the Father wills. Jesus lived his entire life in order to exchange roles with us. Amazing. My question to you today is, where are you willing to go for God? What social boundaries are you willing to cross? societal laws are you willing to forego? I mean, let's face it, we live in a society where culture tells us a lot of things that make it difficult for us to sometimes live out a life of faith. Are you willing to step into the homes of the homebound or a shelter for the homeless? How about crossing a border? Or what about crossing the globe to minister to orphans or to Ebola patients? Would you be willing to cross the street to meet your neighbor? I mean, how many of us have yet to do that? We're called to love God desperately, to love others compassionately, and to serve the least, the last, and the lost. This is the definition of what a disciple or a follower of Jesus does. We, uh, our mission statement here at the church is making disciples who will love God, love others, and serve the world. And that is really what a disciple is. It's really pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. We often pray for God's will, right? How many times have you prayed, God, show me what to do. Tell me what to do. Well, I'm telling you what God wants you to do. Love God with everything you have. I mean, really love him. 
come to worship, immerse yourself in this music, and fall in love with God. Read his word. Fall in love with God. And when you do that, you begin to have a love that pours out of you and love others. Again, that's not easy just because you love God. It takes work to love others, right? We're about to all have a family week. It takes a lot of love, right? Families and friends are messy. But God calls us to love each other despite our differences and messiness and weirdness and idiosyncrasies. He calls us to love each other. And then he calls us to serve, to bring your will to someone, to heal them, to help them, to draw them into a situation where they can experience God in a new way or experience God for the first time. So this week, be thankful. <clears throat> be so thankful. I mean, I'm a big believer in gratitude, and, it, and I believe gratitude really changes your heart towards God for sure. So spend the week thinking about being grateful. Do that, no doubt. But at the same time, tell God how much you love him and you are indebted to him and begin to immerse yourself in what it feels like to be in love with God, to be in love with others and serving. Exert your will and your family's will this week to begin to think, how is it that I can be a true disciple? God will lead you. God will show you the way. You don't have to know all the, the ways, the ins and the outs. You just have to take a step forward. You feel God calling you in a certain direction to work with orphans or to work with children or to work with adults somewhere, a shelter, or in your neighborhood helping a, an elderly lady that needs her yard mode. Whatever it is, if you pray, God will lead you to do something to serve. And as you do that, You'll grow in your love for God. You'll grow in your love for others. And you'll be living as a disciple as we are called to do. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we thank you so much for the ways that you are here for us. We thank you for your presence in this room right here and right now. God, we know you love us deeply, and though it is so hard to understand the depth of that love sometimes, God, we don't always get it, and we forget about it. We take it for granted. God, we desire to love others in the same way that you love us. We desire, God, to fall in love with you deeply so that we can share that love with others, God. Show us how to be a disciple. You've given us the instructions. It's simple. Now just give us the courage to take the first step to do the things you wish us to do. Remind us that it's not about always following the rules, but rather doing what you call us to do, God. We ask, Lord, that you remind us to be grateful and thankful during this week in particular. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.